Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. What's going on? I've been dealing with this like internal struggle in the past week because I've been walking through my neighborhood and seeing so many pumpkins and gourds uh, sitting out, um, rotting and waiting for squirrels to eat them. And it's really starting to get like get me a bit down because I'm like, folks, you can eat those. You can eat those and they taste good. Don't people eat them? Like I, I mean, forgive my ignorance here. I'm grew up in a Jamaican family that's uh, quite Christian and uh, we didn't really participate in the Halloween fall stuff. It's all very heathenous, as you know. Um, <laughs> and uh, isn't that part of the tradition? Like, don't you, don't you like scoop it out and like maybe roast and eat it or like make, I don't know, a pumpkin pie or something before you, before you like put it on your doors? Do people not eat these things? No, no, not. I mean, like if you if you scoop it out, a lot of people will roast the seeds. I mean, if you're not roasting the seeds, my God, folks, you have to at least roast the seeds. They're so good. Um, and it's easy to do. But no, most of the times, like especially between like from the beginning of October until Halloween, before you actually start to see jack-o'-lanterns. No, people just let the, the, the gourds and the squashes and the pumpkins just like just sit there and rot and look, I don't know, folly. <laughs> Or something on their porches and in their windows. Well, that seems like not a good idea. I love pumpkin. There's like really great soups. There's an amazing Jamaican soup that you can make with pumpkin. Oh my God. It's one of my favorite things to eat at this time of year. Oh my God, people eat your pumpkins, eat your gourds. Are all (laughs) gourds edible? I don't know. I don't think any are poisonous, but there's certainly like the little decorative ones would probably be like only useful for a soup. Um, So... Beyond that, though, I think they all are. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think they're like mushrooms where, like, you might die if you eat the wrong one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, I've never heard that before. Okay, okay, people who are listening, if you're listening, eat your eat your pumpkins and gourds and stuff. Yeah. Don't waste it. Yeah. And enjoy them. They're enjoy good. them. I mean, I just made this wonderful ravioli where I just took pumpkin and ricotta and parmesan and I mixed all together with some lemon juice and I handmade the ravioli and it was outstanding and it's super easy to do this I mean making ravioli is not super easy you need to have a a pasta maker so you know okay fine but it's really great I strongly recommend folks do that thank you for tuning in to Sandy and Nora's cooking show (laughs) (laughs) I'm great I'm doing great uh you know we're just I've, I've had a really great week organizing with some really, with some younger um, activists uh, across the country and um, doing some work uh, on uh, workshopping on reparations internationally. Um, you know, COVID is really interesting because it allows you to, to give a workshop in Barcelona about <laughs> reparations organizing across borders oh, to wow. an international um, audience. And uh, I'm feeling great. I'm feeling kind of reinvigorated. Um, lots of uh, artists were part of uh, the group that I was connecting with, uh, organizing youth. And I tell you, art- artists will always reinvigorate you. So I'm doing great. Mm. I'm doing great. I'm feeling a lot of gratitude and I want to give some too. So let's do that. 
Great idea. Yes, this week uh, we have to say thank you so much to Jordan and Michael uh, as new donors or donors who've just changed uh, their mounts for the show for the, you know, we, we should like to shout everyone out. So thank you to those two and to everybody that supports St. Inor, whether it's through financial donations and support or through word of mouth, because of course we depend on you all uh, for some word of mouth to make sure everybody knows about this podcast. Yes, thank you so, so much. Nora, I've been thinking a lot this week about water. Water. I mean, see, here I am thinking about gourds and pumpkins, and you're thinking of something that is even more <laughs> fundamental than them, though they do get very, very juicy, I have to say. Yeah, I. it's so fundamental, so important to everything that we do. Um, I had the pleasure of attending a workshop this week by Debbie Young and Eat Africa. For those of you who don't know them, they're a playwright, dub poet, and um, actor, uh, wonderful um, activist, teacher, scholar uh, from, from Jamaica and bases their time mostly uh, in Toronto and is currently in the UK um, working on a PhD. And... They got us thinking, the, the uh, participants thinking a lot about how water really contributes to our life and how we need to think about water and um, the sort of respect that we should be um, not just giving to the earth, but specifically uh, thinking about when it comes to water and the respect that we uh, should have for indigenous communities all around the world who are really on the front line of protecting water uh, in our communities. And well, while this is happening, of course, one of the biggest stories to come out of this place, although I don't, I don't think it's as, it's it's not been as big as it should be, quite frankly, um, is the tainted, the fuel tainted water up in Nunavut. Yeah, the whole city of Iqaluit, which is, uh, you know, about 7,000 people, has not had drinking water now uh, for more than a week. And as you said, Sandy, it's because there's hydrocarbons are in the water and it's not drinkable. And and, and residents of the city were complaining uh, for days before the official call um, was made that, that saying they could smell, you know, gasoline or some sort of chemical product in the water. And it's... You know, like in Canada, we've got these conversations that seem to continuously happen over and over and politicians kind of don't take blame. They pass off blame. They assume a little bit of blame and then they kind of ignore it when it comes to Indigenous communities uh, and access to water. Because, of course, there are hundreds of communities that still have boil water ad- advisories and cannot drink the water that comes from their taps if they even have taps. Of course, there's also some communities that aren't actually plugged into a local water source uh, in the way that uh, most communities in Canada are. But this is, we've got a capital city, uh, Iqaluit, in Nunavut, where people cannot drink the water. And I, I'm glad that you talked about this workshop that you were in and, and thinking through, like, the connection between um, Indigenous resistance and nationhood and defending water. In a country like Canada, where we have the largest uh, amounts of, of fresh water in the world, right, 20% of the world's fresh water is found in Canada, and we seem to have governments that are either hell-bent on destroying our water stocks, selling off our water stocks, or refusing to actually give communities the water infrastructure that they need to avoid a crisis like this. And 
it's a combination of the distance, a combination of racism, a combination of the fact that the so few journalists in Ikhaluit, I don't know exactly what it is. All of these things together, we're not hearing about this really major emergency and we're not hearing what governments are doing or what the federal government specifically is doing to, to try and rectify this as soon as possible. But I can't imagine it's very easy to live where you cannot drink the water at all and you're relying on getting water with whatever containers you have to bring it back to home until the next time you have to go and get more water. Yeah, I mean, the government of Nunavut is literally flying in water to the community because um, it's just so dangerous right now. Uh, and of course, it's going to have a, a huge impact on uh, on everyone who lives in the region. And it seems like it, you know, it's all of the issues that Nora just set, said about, you know, the government uh, and uh, what it wants to do with respect to water. But it's also about the climate crisis. Um, part of the reason that this is happening is because uh, of of warmer temperatures that may have, I mean, this isn't, it doesn't seem like this is a for sure thing that people know for sure. But one of the, the, um, hypotheses about why this has happened is that um, uh, warming temperatures has liberated previous oil spills and um, they're moving through pipes um, in a way that uh, they never should have been able to given what the temperatures are. And so, I mean, God, we really got to think about, once again, as we said on this on this podcast before, man, we are in the middle of a giant crisis that we are largely ignoring in this country. And by we, I mean they, and by they, I mean the fucking government, the powers that be. And who is it going to harm first? We know this and we're, we're seeing it happen. And we're also seeing, um, a, a media that's kind of ignoring it. I mean, I'm, I was reading this article, Nora, that's in, um, CTV, which is like, great. Okay. There's an article that's, that's been produced in CTV. And then I get to the bottom and it says, this story was produced with the financial assistance of the Facebook. Mm, yeah, right, 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 right. And I'm, I'm really confused about that. I mean, uh, I don't know really what that means. I, I would have to like take a deeper look. But the questions that immediately come to mind are, did, this, did the news need additional assistance to, to make this story happen? Why did they have to publish that um, it was it was uh, that Facebook did help uh, to fund this particular story. Is it not a priority all on its own? Um, is it not something that's like in the budget to go to Nunavut to to go to Iqaluit to report on this? I'm not sure what that means, but it is very confusing to me that on both ends of the story, from the beginning of like how does something like this happen? Well, private corporations and uh, whatever the priorities are of the government that are. Um, motivated by the profit motive to the to the other end of the story of like, why aren't we really seeing this? Um, and where are we seeing it? And how are we seeing it? Because of private dollars from um, Facebook. I just, there's something really gross to me about both ends of that being mitigated by capitalism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can actually tell you what that funding is. And it's, um, it is, uh, it's, I think it's actually very gross. So in an attempt to try and calm the 
calls to tax Facebook, right? Because Facebook doesn't, you don't pay tax. If you pay for an ad on Facebook, you don't have to pay fucking GST or HST or PST or whatever the fuck tax you pay wherever you are in Canada. Um, And so Facebook uh, pays off uh, local news sources through these grants as a way to say, well, we understand that we're undermining local news. We, we understand that all of this local news content is actually what feeds Facebook, right? Our news feeds tend to be full of news clips from the CTVs and the globals and your local newspapers of the world. And Facebook doesn't have to pay for any of that. Um, and that's how we're all seeing it. And so we're giving Facebook more money by giving them more of our time and access to us while the news organizations don't have the kind of money that they need. And so Facebook has come up with this cockamamie plan to just, you know, pay off governments or pay off news agencies with, you know, here's some money. You'll be able to hire a couple of new journalists or maybe you can hire like pay for an initiative or whatever. And there's news agencies all across Canada have accepted Facebook money. And this is, of course, ridiculous that we don't have a government that is going to say, no, Facebook, fuck you. You're going to pay your taxes like this is not. This is not optional for anybody in this country. Why the fuck is it optional for a corporation as wealthy as Facebook? Um, And so I'm glad you noticed that because it does definitely speak to a huge other crisis. Um, And the final thing I'll say on the the water crisis is, you know, oftentimes um, northern communities and indigenous communities, as you said, Sandy, are hit first, are hit extremely hard with these kinds of crises. And um, and water infrastructure is definitely one of those examples. You know, in Quebec City, we have a water shortage right now. Um, and, and people are freaking out that our water table is as low as it is, that all of the rivers are as low as they are, where we get our water from. And they're just like, ooh, what do we do? There's not really anyone with the political will to say this is what we do. We, you know, we actually address overuse of water. We, you know, people... I mean, this is a place where people have a fucking thousand pools per capita. Like, maybe we should talk about that. But no, it's just kind of like kick the, the can down the road and hope that we don't have to deal with these issues. Well, Iqaluit's saying to us, you know, not only do we need help, right, from the rest of Canada, but also all Canadians, like, pay attention to these issues because neoliberalism has meant that public services are under tremendous strain and they will be under strain to the point of collapse. And it just because it's happening somewhere that might be far away from you physically might be currently doesn't mean that this is also not going to happen uh, to you directly. Mm-hmm. So uh, we should all be watching this very carefully and these other stories that are coming out about um, water and how the climate crisis is, is impacting us in ways that we've thought of and haven't thought of. And, of course, uh, continue to do the organizing work that needs to happen um, to to change this, lest we all perish. Okay, so on that Mm. um, cheerful Mm -hmm. note, we are going to move into the main story for tonight. So, I mean, you've heard it here before, abolish the police, but maybe we should expand that to abolish the military. Why don't we just go ahead and get rid of all of the... Uh, state-sanctioned use of violence against people. What do you think, Nora? I thought that you were going to suggest that the military be called in to help a Kaluit. What? <laughs> I thought that was what we were doing, right? Like, that's the, oh my God, COVID's out of control. Call the military. Uh, flood, call the military. Oh my God, there's snow. Call the military, right? Aren't they like the most effective disaster relief force that we have in this country? 
Well, you see how it mirrors the police, right? It, it just mirrors oh, the yeah. police so well. It's like um, when something happens that we don't know how to deal with in society, government or lazy folks say, um, or people who just don't know or have been so indoctrinated into um, the police solving all the problems, you know, you call the police. It's noisy in the apartment next to you, call the police. It's you're having some sort of argument outside and you think that that person shouldn't be able to barbecue there, Karen calls the police. You know, like uh, the, <laughs> you, the, the journalists are being uh, targeted by white supremacists who may include the police. <laughs> Uh, the Canadian Association for Journalists say, "Call the police." Um, none of those, none of those problems can really be solved by police. And similarly, you know, a snowfall that's like uh, a little too large, <laughs> call the military. <laughs> you know, water or uh, COVID pandemic happening, and the infrastructure doesn't uh, exist, or we haven't planned for an infrastructure to support uh, vaccination and testing. Call the military because they've, I don't know, done this before. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Um, uh, there's fires happening in a way that we can't control. Call the military. It's, uh, it's, it's, mm, there's some parallels here, Nora. There's some parallels. Oh, are there ever. Now, this is a topic that we could talk about anytime. You know, this is always, I think, a current topic. It's always something we should be talking about. We could be talking about it every time that the budget comes out and the military gets another couple billion dollars to do something in Iraq or do something in Syria or do something in Mali or Ukraine or whatever. Like, we're not exactly given the details, but we do know that there's like, you know, $2 billion are, are given have been given uh, every year of the um, of the liberals offering their budgets to Canada's military in the Middle East. It's like doing what exactly? But why would we be talking about this tonight specifically? Well, the the military, in addition to like having this whole problem of uh, corruption, of arming people around the world they shouldn't be arming, of a, a lot of other things, I think we'll probably get into tonight. They've also been embroiled in uh, sexual assault scandals. And when I say embroiled, I mean, it feels like every other week there's a new senior leader of the military um, being uh, put on paid leave, given a paid vacation while military police investigate them for sexual assault or harassment or something of a sexual nature. The Globe and Mail this week reported that Lieutenant General Stephen Whalen has been the most recent person to be accused of sexual assault. Whalen actually replaced Vice Admiral Hayden Edmondson, who also was on, uh, put on leave uh, for sexual assault allegations. There's also been Lieutenant General Trevor Cadieux, who's been on leave since September 5th for sexual misconduct complaint. And the former chief of the defense staff, Jonathan Vance, and his successor, successor Admiral Art McDonald, have been investigated. And, of course, Denis Fortin, who uh, was put in charge of Canada's COVID vaccine deployment. Uh, that seems like a lot of guys, Sandy. <laughs> That's that is a lot of guys. It's almost as though there's something, you know, Nora, it's like I would think maybe it's like there's something baked into the way the military operates mm. that makes sexual assault part 
of its function because otherwise I do not know how you explain something like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't think you can otherwise. And, and you know, underneath all of this stuff, like this is this is a force that has always used sexual violence in some way, whether that sexual violence is against new recruits or whether it's it's it's, you know, um, against children of people within the armed forces. And I'm thinking of a friend of mine named Bobby Bees, who's fought for their entire life for justice, um, for sexual assaults that they experienced as a child uh, while living at CF- CFB Nemeo, which is near Edmonton and doesn't uh, exist anymore. Um, and of course, there's, you know, class action lawsuits for women who've served in the in the forces, who've also experienced sexual assault. Um, yeah, it, it seems pretty f- pretty fucking systemic, which is not super surprising considering like what they exist to do. And if if you are someone who is having a reaction to this, much like some people may have had a reaction to the defund the police episode of, of months past, <laughs> that's like, what? That That's just, that's ridiculous. That's what, how could they even think this? Just take a deep breath and know that everything that exists in society is worthy of questioning. Everything is worthy of questioning. And the reason that you might be feeling this way is uh, because of how much you have been taught that we need a military, how much that you have been taught that the military does for you and how much, uh, just to be frank, propaganda has brought your way to make you think that this is something that's really essential in your life, but that probably doesn't impact you directly, but does um, seriously impact and potentially harm all sorts of people, especially um, uh, in this particular uh, time right now with respect to this, uh, these media stories, all of these sexual assaults. One of the things that we have to be really clear about, these sexual assaults that Nora, uh, or these allegations of sexual assault that Nora is talking about, um, they're not it. That's not all. Right. Like that, the, the amount of times that a sexual assault actually comes forward and can actually be prosecuted and can actually be investigated. That's usually the estimate in Canada is around, um, 20% of what typically exists just out in the world, um, uh, in terms of uh, sexual assault uh, statistics and, and, and what we know. Um, and that is going to be replicated, uh, in a place like the military as well, where, uh, power, um, it's very important. It's very important to how you um, rise in the ranks, whether you go up, uh, whether your salary goes up, um, what sort of uh, decorations you're able to get. And the people who hold that power are men. They're men. And uh, if, you're, if you are making a complaint, if you are going against the grain in some way, that is going to impact your entire life. It's going to impact all of your um, your social relations, because the military is so encompassing um, when you uh, go to serve or go into education in the military or whatever it is, it's so encompassing that it may impact your entire social relations and everything that you do in your world. And so for, for these allegations to even come forward is really... Uh, uh, quite a risk that someone that someone's were taking with their own lives to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And so, you know, I think that we can make the argument that this is a problem. I think that, you know, even conservatives can make the argument that this is a problem. Um, But how then do we get from this being a problem to this is a systemic problem and then to the conclusion, therefore, the military shouldn't exist? Um, and I think that that's probably a really important uh, thing to untangle for, for for people because, as Sandy, you say, uh, these are often just givens. Like, obviously, we need a military. Um, and so, you know, for me, I like to start with um, just how deeply fucked up the military is. <laughs> I think that that's useful. Um, and so, you know, we had this guy at the head of our um, vaccine uh, program, uh, Denny Fortin. He, as I had said already, has also faced, uh, as the press says, a historical charge of sexual assault, meaning it happened a long time ago. And he was also in the news about a decade ago um, as being the person in charge of the Canadian forces in Afghanistan while Canada was being accused of transferring Afghan detainees to the Americans to be tortured. And very few people fucking mentioned that when he was appointed the head of the vaccine uh, thing. Like it was like, oh, of course, the military, of course, uh, experts in logistics and um, needle giving. And uh, they know, um, you know, Canada and the, the airports and uh, we can trust them. Right. It's like, oh, this man can transfer people to be tortured. So he's probably very good at transferring fucking Moderna and Pfizer vaccines. Right. What else doesn't get talked about? Oh, how about the fact that Canadian soldiers have been given proof that people they're training in, a, in Iraq, so Iraqi security forces or police security forces, whatever, uh, are using the techniques that the Canadian military is teaching them and going on to commit war crimes. And video evidence of those war crimes, of the, the horrific things that are being done that they can, you know, learned or maybe didn't learn directly but are being taught by the Canadian soldiers, um, came back to Canada. Canadian soldiers who then blew the whistle. And what's happened with that? Again, nothing. Nothing has happened with that. And that's barely even in the news. And this is not old. This is like in the last couple of years. And then two weeks ago, David Pugliese from the Ottawa Citizen reports that a a study coming out of an American university has shown that far-right neo-Nazis in Ukraine have bragged that they received money directly from Canadian forces, which makes sense because there's a lot of... Wait, wait, wait. Sorry. Back that up. Say it slower. I didn't know this story. Say that again. Right. So on social media accounts, um, many uh, like literal fucking Nazis in Ukraine have claimed that they've received direct funding from NATO and separately from the Canadian Armed Forces. And it's not too surprising if you know anything about how much of a Nazi problem the Ukrainian army has. Um, And of course, Operation Unifier, Canada's in Ukraine for some fucking reason, I guess, to fight for Crimea, though we haven't really heard much about that. Um, and so, as I say, this this was news that was re- reported by by Pugliese for the first time a couple of weeks ago, based on this uh, study from the American from this American university. And so, again, like, where in the fuck is anyone talking about this? No one, no one in the in the press, and no politician has any interest in talking about the the military in these ways. There are military journalists like Pugliese, like M- Mercedes Stevenson, Murray Brewster. Uh, Jim Bronski a little bit that, that the Canadian press, but otherwise it's like, that's it. And it's very, very isolated to those like a couple of, of national journalists. And then politicians are like, fuck, like, ee, this is not going to be good for us on any end of the political spectrum. And so it's not an issue at all. And so then I'm looking at this and going, why the fuck do they exist? Why the fuck would Canadian money get into the hands of Ukrainian neo-Nazis? What the fuck purpose does that serve? Oh, it serves, well, I mean, it serves our interest in Ukraine because they're part of, um, they're part of the military there. 
Oh my God, that is uh, terrifying. But also it tracks, it tracks with these stories that, again, haven't been elevated very much, but these stories that have come out of the military in Canada about white supremacist organizing and hate in the ranks of the military and people who uh, come from who are literally proud boys, who call themselves proud boys, who are part of the military. It's almost as though violence is baked in to its whole raison d'etre and it cannot be contained in how it is expressed. I mean, we often have this uh, kind of, uh, I think, what's the word, this... uh, resistance to wanting to talk about individual members of like the police or the military um, when when we talk about these things, because we want to make sure that people understand that it's a systemic problem. But I do think that uh, we need to, to think about if you are a piece of shit white supremacist person who hates women and wants to be violent to them, and you are like looking at the world of possible career choices... There are some that stand out a little bit more than others that is going to allow you to use power and violence in the way that you want, in the way that you're attracted to. And that's part of the reason why these things um, are a problem in policing and the military. And we shouldn't shy away from understanding that not and, and talking about that not doing so uh, just uh, allows us to pretend that something is what it is not. Um, but Nora, like, again, I'm, I'm thinking about these, the folks who might be listening to us who are like, uh, how could you talk about this? Like, what will we do, Nora? What will we do? How will we defend our borders? <laughs> the military doesn't even do that. Like, we've got a, a paramilitary force <laughs> called CBSA that fucking does that. And they also should be fucking annihilated. I mean, annihilated. Yeah, rhetorically annihilated. I mean, does does the CBSA defend our borders or does it defend the American borders? <laughs> I just, right. And I don't know that they even really work for us or that Canada is a real country. No, no. I mean, it's all very confusing. No, I, it's, it's, it, it definitely doesn't exist. And no, like we Canada is like not a military superpower. Uh, we. <laughs> We, we have so much more to worry about, uh, about the, the, the collapse of the American empire than like what the fuck our military is doing. And if we want to save ourselves a couple billion dollars every year and just get rid of the military and regroup and look at, say, what exactly is it do we need? Like we have uh, an emergency group in the Red Cross. Like, do they need to be given doctors and nurses to be able to respond to quick emergencies or do we need to have some sort of other special force of doctors and nurses is there another way that we need to allow people to have higher education for free uh because obviously that's a huge source of why people go into the military in the first place um is there is there a need to have some sort of disaster relief um specialists that that all seems very reasonable and i don't see what that has to do with learning how to fucking murder people and I certainly don't see what that has to do with us then also going around the world and teaching other people like the Centuria uh, group within the uh, Ukrainian army how to murder people. <laughs> I mean, it just seems all very bad. 
I think that you're raising a really excellent point when you're talking about the other things that we could be doing with this money. We used to, uh, when we organized in the student movement, we used to always compare the amount of money that was going to the to the military to the amount of money that was being spent on post-secondary education because it could make post-secondary education free and then some. Uh, but beyond that, you know, as we have been more and more talking about uh, the climate crisis and all of these um, disasters that we are dealing with in this country, like, yeah, why not create, <laughs> this just seems so obvious, why not spend money creating um, services that literally could deal with these things um, and deal with them in a way that makes sense and not deal with them in a way that's just like, we're giving this over to you because we don't really know what else to do. We're not going to have, um, for, for the foreseeable future, a shrinking reliance on disaster relief related to the climate crisis. That is an extremely depressing and, um, you know, anxiety inducing thing to say, but it is the truth. And are we going to continue to rely on um, a service that is problematic for so many reasons that baked into its infrastructure is violence against the people within um, its its uh, within its ranks and outside of its ranks and outside of this country, people who um, uh, this country clearly doesn't value? Is that the trade-off for having some extra hands to help with vaccinations? the trade-off for having some extra hands to help with um, uh, fire relief? I don't know. That doesn't seem like a good trade-off to me. Like, just fuck that piece of it and just give me a service that Mm -hmm. is going to be able to focus on the sorts of disaster relief that we need. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like the biggest loss would be the ability for the parties to just reach to the military as, like, one source of a solution. Like, they are a very rhetorically useful uh, group of people, And obviously, you can play uh, a certain kind of politics when you're bringing the military involved. And all three major parties fucking do this. You know, I was so annoyed. doesn't seem like the strong enough word, but I was certainly very fucking annoyed when the NDP was like, we need the military to distribute vaccines faster. Call in the military to do this. Like back in February, when vaccine distribution was like not really at full capacity. I mean, we were waiting for most of the shipments and there's not much a whole like that the federal government could have done because a lot of this was like up to the provinces and some provinces were doing some provinces were doing it right. And some provinces were Ontario. And I think that um, (laughs) when when you have uh, this uh, this security force, I mean, first of all, it, it, it gives people this idea that Canada is a peacekeeping country, which is one of the big myths on which Canada has been built. And it gives the idea that we are engaged in this like global, this Western capitalistic um, uh, solidarity uh, that is enforced through killing people. That's enforced through war. And, you know, we of course we are uh, we get involved with wars. We just left Afghanistan. uh, Well, sorry. We are involved with wars. You know, we're still involved overseas, as we've already mentioned, in Ukraine and Mali and in, in Iraq. And it's like, for what? Like, for 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 the fuck what? We're defending, like, a, 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 the shittiest political fucking ideology on the planet. We are killing people at the same time. And also that, you know, a bunch of fucking, like, shitheads can be like, oh, Canada, like, these people died for your freedom. And it's like, 
motherfucker, more people have died on a picket line in this country than died fighting for my right to be free. Like, that, like there is no there is no fight for freedom in Canada. It is called a genocide, which is the literal opposite of that. But the the but then that myth is so strong and so necessary to hold up so much of Canada that even if our military is a joke and doesn't actually fucking do anything, it still needs to exist so that a certain swath of the population in this country can feel like we're a real country and we're a real country with these rights and liberties that were fought by people and died by people so that we can enjoy them today. I want to talk a little bit more about something you raised earlier, which is how one of the ways that the, that the military um, uh, recruits, which is by preying on folks who um, are poorer and may want to have an education but can't afford it. I mean, my father seriously considered the military as an option. My sister seriously considered the military as an option. And I'm not going to lie. When I knew, you know, my sister and I were the double cohort year, and I looked at the information because I did not know where my the money was going to come for, from to, to, to get the education that I wanted. Um, this is really, really, really cruel, gross, gross stuff. Um, confining people to, um, constraining people's choices as to how they can live their lives uh, and then saying, here's a way out. Um, all you have to do is exactly what we tell you <laughs> for a period of time. Um, because, of course, that's uh, one of the tenets of the military is that, you know, you're not supposed to question um, the sorts of, uh, of uh, commands that you're given. And it's, it's just such a, a gross way to force people into this sort of um, into, into being a part of the military. Uh, it, people shouldn't have to, um, compromise a huge part of who they are, um, in order to get a post-secondary education. And, um, the, the recruitment of any sort of, uh, well, you know, none of this stuff should exist, so there shouldn't be any recruitment, but, um, going after folks who are poorer, who are literally like the most exploited in a capitalist system. It's just, it's just so immoral. It's so morally bankrupt. And then to be proud of something like that, to say, uh, you know, we, we are able to provide this much education to these many people. Like it is extremely troublesome that that's not something that is more seriously questioned on a regular basis. The fact that the military bases, uh, the military forces um, go into high schools in low-income areas to recruit and to say, hey, we know you want that education. You don't have to um, go into debt for it. Come over here and let us tell you how. It just, uh, it continues to break my heart that that's something that uh, people really close to me seriously considered, um, and that I even, you know, I didn't consider it that deeply, but I did <laughs> look at the information, you know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. and that so many thousands of other people are doing that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember so well the day that the Navy was at my high school and I, I also did not consider it seriously, but I certainly thought about it. And I thought about how neat it would be to travel and to have free education and, 
you know, looking back, there were a lot of kids that I grew up with who went into the military. Um, And partly partly that was because there was an armory in my town and there was a very strong presence of the Legion and very strong presence of like air cadets, which was a thing that a lot of kids did. And it is heartbreaking because it's just like, what for what the fuck for? Like the thing that I th- think is so fascinating about the military, it's it's kind of like how we say like there's only socialism for the rich in Canada, which is I think such a great way to think of the way rich people do operate in this country. Like there's only socialism mm-hmm. for the rich. But the military does demonstrate how tenets of socialism in terms of like full access to certain to, to public services uh, from the state. And it's the responsibility of the state to you know, finish that medical training to make sure that you have certain skills to blah, 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 like to house you. Right. My God. Uh, that is just like, no, no, but we would never extend that to to anybody who's not literally willing to die for this fucking country, which is like, I'm, I'm so, sorry. What did you just say? You want that? Why is that the prereq- prerequisite for a free medical education or for a free a flight, a pilot education, right? That just, it just doesn't make any sense at all. And these are skills that everyone should have access to. It should be totally free. And by being free, we would actually be able to, you know, address the fact that we have a healthcare crisis where people are not going into healthcare fields because education is expensive and the fields are low paid and it sucks, right? So, you know, this is one of those areas where if you just think about it for like fucking one minute, you should be able to arrive at the logical conclusion, which is, yeah, what the fuck? Why the fuck do we have a military? And why do we um, why why is there not even a public discussion about the military in this way? One of the most frustrating things has been to see like a couple of high profile feminists like talking as if like sexual assault can be rooted out of the military, as if it is literally not one of their tools. That's like saying like, oh, we can probably get guns out of the military. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think people have this idea that has been so ingrained into the Canadian mythology that, you know, the, the our military is different. Our military is different than the other militaries that you hear about around the world who employ rape as a tool. Our military is not the sort of military um, that is like this uh, ultra um, uh patriarchal, uh, violent, uh, vile organization. No, 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 no. You see, the Canadian colonial project is significantly different than any other colonial project that was built from an imperial project. The Canadians have figured it out, you know? The Canadians have created a different armed forces that is literally different than every other, every possible other armed force that you could think of around the world. The Canadians are the exception. Sounds a little ridiculous, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's complete, it's complete bullshit. And it's the kind of bullshit that all of Canadian exceptionalism is based on, right? We're nice. Therefore, our military has got to be nicer. And it's like, oh, except for the whole military apparatus is like, they're sexual abusers. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. But Yeah, but it's like, no, no, there's nothing good. Like, literally, there has been nothing fucking good about this entire institution in, in, in what, decades? Like, there's a reason why people have to keep going back to fucking Holland in 1945 to make the argument that the Canadian military was good, right? Yes, the liberation of Holland was wonderful, and I've spent a fucking 
big part of my childhood focused on that, that I've been to Appledorn and I've been in the Canadian military parades and I know more about that than most fucking people in this country. And still, it does not justify the continued existence of this fucking group of people today because warfare looks different. The global forces are changing. And let us not forget that when our media and our politicians are cheerleading a war with China, they are necessarily saying that there must be some sort of bloodshed in this kind of new aggression. Because otherwise, what the fuck, what the fuck do they think is going to happen? That we're going to just like convince China to do better? It's like, what is the point of, 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 of trying to cheerlead a war with China right now? It's all very it's very fucking interesting how uh, the powers that be like to confuse these issues and like to project these things onto the population. And then the population is like, yeah, fuck China. Yeah. Yeah. We got a military. And it's like, and then what? We're going to invade? <laughs> like, We're going to fucking fly F fucking 35s over there. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? You know, I, th- I think, Nora, there's this like the idea that there are like basic things that countries t- should provide to to its citizens and like um one of the assumptions is that you know a country has i don't know fuck a currency a government not necessarily their own currency obviously but currency a government and like some services and a military i think that that is an assumption that a lot of people make just based off of the um propaganda that we're subjected to all of our years um you know in all of our formative years there are a lot of countries out there who actually just don't have a military. I don't know how many people are aware of that, but for those of you who are um, going to listen to this podcast and think really critically to yourself, oh man, I, I haven't thought of that. Um, you know, just look that up and and uh, do some investigating on your own, and just resist the knee jerk uh, reaction of thinking that this is this is uh, wild and this is is uh, an idea that doesn't make any sense because 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 what. Because what? Because it's always has been. Uh, because it's just necessary. Because someone has told you that it's necessary all of your life. Like, look, um, much like the police, with respect to the military, when we invoke these services as things that we need, we're really usually saying that we need something else, and it's a stand-in for the something else that we do desperately need. So when we say that we need them to help with. Um, with these climate disasters, what we need is a plan to deal with climate disasters. When we say that we need them, um, when when someone um, gets robbed or someone is feeling unsafe, what we need is to actually be safe. And in both of these cases, the police don't provide that, and um, the the army, the, our military forces do not provide those things. And so, let's think really critically. What do we actually need them for? When do we invoke, like, we need to, to send the military? Um, think critically if you're a political party. Think critically if you are a journalist. Think critically if you're an individual in this world. What are we saying that we really need them for? And the trade-off, all of the harms that they inflict on so many people, the organizing base that they provide for white supremacy... Is it worth it to just give these issues that don't have a solution to just allow the military forces to stand in for solutions that we could actually be building from the ground up? 